Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Welcome back, everyone, to The Front Line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, always joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download our Veritas Catholic Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. And please be sure to follow Joe and I on Facebook and YouTube. You can find us at The Front Line with Joe and Joe. Like, subscribe, share hit that little bell, do all that fun stuff. And today we are very pleased and honored to be joined by Dr. John Bergsma. And we are gonna talk to him about his new book, Jesus and the Old Testament Roots of the Priesthood. And for those of you who are not familiar with John, just a brief bio, John Bergsma is a professor of theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. A former Protestant pastor, Dr. Bergsma has authored several books on scripture and the Catholic faith, including Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, Revealing the Jewish Roots of the Church, and A Catholic Introduction to the Bible, Old Testament with Brant Petrie. Dr. Bergsma speaks regularly for parish missions, diocesan conferences, clergy convocations, and other events nationally and internationally. He and his wife Dawn reside with their eight children in Steubenville, Ohio. Dr. John Bergsma, welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe. Absolutely. Great to be out with you, Joe's. <laughs> Excellent. And yeah, we'll give you enough time at the end, uh, Dr. Bergsma, where you can let everybody know if they want to contact you for speaking engagements and things like that, uh, where we could uh, we could provide that information. So having said all that, I'm going to hand it over to Joe. We'll start with a prayer. Um, it's our custom to start with the prayer because all good things start with the prayer. And this is a good thing in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Remember, Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, Mary never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly into you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, before you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother, the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Before we get into the conversation, Doctor, I, I, I see a vowel at the end of your name. Are you Italian? No. Oh, uh, that would be much more interesting than what I really am. I'm really Dutch. Okay. You know, um, and you mentioned Peter Kreeft, uh that you've had him on before. You know, he went to the same Dutch college that I went to in Western Michigan, and he converted Catholic to Catholicism about 50 years before I did. Interesting. <laughs> interesting. So you you have a Calvinist background? Yeah, Calvinist, Dutch Calvinist. Yeah. Okay. So you, interesting. You, those smuzz and those straws and people like that. You probably still have a few of them left around in New Jersey and north of the city and stuff like that, you know, from, from way, way back in the, in the early times of the country, you know, but uh, you know, the, the, the Dutch used to be around and then, then they moved to West Michigan and out to, uh, you know, the Pacific Northwest and California, stuff like that. But okay, yeah. very interesting. Very interesting. I did. T- I saw that a I said, okay, we got the vowel see vowels. We think Italian. I would speak with my hands. I love it. I love it. Um, you mentioned that uh, you have a Calvinist background and Joe in the bio said that you're a convert to the church. Tell us a little bit about that journey. I'm always interested to hear when people uh, come into the church. Yeah. You know, I always say you want the three-hour version or the three-minute version, but I'll try to keep it super short here. Um, So I was a a Protestant pastor, uh, like my father, and uh, doing Protestant ministry, I began to have doubts about salvation by faith alone because I saw that it led people to think that uh, they could do whatever they wanted, uh, any kind of immoral thing, and just because they believe that Jesus is the Son of God that would save them, and that contradicted scriptures that I thought of, like, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then I was having doubts about sola scriptura, or the Bible alone idea, which is another pillar of Protestantism, because I saw that every different Protestant group had their own interpretation of the scripture, and there was just no way to come to agreement on what the Bible actually meant. And I was like, Lord, what is this? You know, it it all seems to be chaos and confusion out here. So in the midst of that, 
I was applying to graduates uh, to graduate schools for a Bible program, do a doctorate in Bible. By God's providence, I got accepted into the University of Notre Dame in uh, in Indiana. Went down there. Uh, actually met fantastic Catholics in the graduate school program there. People that were full of the Holy Spirit and could articulate their faith. And this is most important. They could defend their faith from Scripture. And I was totally blown away when I met a Catholic who carried a New Testament with him and would actually pull out and quote scripture, uh, you know, chapter and verse when I would challenge him on different Catholic doctrines. And this guy so impressed me. And then he got me to read the church fathers. And when I got into the earliest of the church fathers, like St. Ignatius of Antioch, 10 years after the death of the apostle Paul, excuse me, the apostle John, and already he is telling the Christians, stay away from anyone who refuses to confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which flesh suffered for our sins and which flesh was raised for our salvation. And when I, when I realized that the pastors of the very early church warned everyone to stay away from anyone who refused to confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of Jesus, I realized that if I was teleported back to the early church, I would have been a heretic because I did not have the common faith of the early Christians, which was that the Eucharist was the flesh of Jesus, the real presence. And so that testimony of the early fathers to the real presence convinced me I needed to become part of the early church, which was the Catholic church. And so one thing led to another and, and uh, I came in, but it was really on the issue of the Eucharist, which is, you know, powerful at this time of year, because you know, just on Thursday, we celebrated the institution of the Eucharist, and I kind of relived my own experience of discovering the real presence all over again. So it's it's really about Christ present in the Eucharist. That is the new covenant, according to Luke twenty two twenty. So that's it in a nutshell. I, I love what you and Dr. Brant Petrie do. Um, I watch you guys all the time in your YouTube videos and the way you explain things. What I love about it more than anything else is you're you're not confrontational. Um, I think a lot of the times Protestant Catholic debates could get very confrontational where I love that you just you lay it out just as you did. Just a very simple example of, OK, this is what St. Ignatius said about the Eucharist um, or this is what this other church father who, by the way, was a student of one of the apostles. This is what they had to say right. along those same lines. Briefly, um, tell our audiences, I think a lot of people don't know about it. Um, what is the What is the Didache? Why is that? Why is that document important, especially in regards to, again, um, showing how the, you know the Catholic faith does in fact go back to the beginning, or at least give a very good indication that this is the, this is the faith of the Church that Jesus founded. Yeah. So the Didache is an early catechetical document uh, from either the the uh, first century, the second century, but very early, regardless. Uh, that has all of, you know, the, the basic components of Catholicism are already present there. And, um, you know, so it's, it's a powerful witness to uh, the fact that our faith goes back to the earliest church. I mean, in the Didache, you don't have anything about salvation by faith alone. You don't have anything about the Bible alone or these other rallying cries of, uh, you know, the Reformation. Uh, instead, you have Catholic moral teaching. You have already, um, you know, the uh, Catholic teaching on marriage and, uh, and uh, uh, openness to life and, and no abortion and, uh, you know, the other components of the Catholic faith present there. And so it's just a powerful witness. Correct me if I'm wrong, and then we'll move on. In the Didache, the word abortion is used. The, the yeah, it's actual it's, word abortion. Yeah, I, I, I can't verify that, but it does talk about the life of the fetus and or the, of the unborn child. So it's it's clear that, you know, from the very beginning, Christians respected that that uh, child that was already a human being growing in the child in the mother's womb. Excellent. John, in terms of this book, Jesus and the Old Testament Roots of the Priesthood, um, I read that basically the book came out of uh, the COVID period uh, in terms of the formation of it. Walk us through that a little bit. I think that's interesting. On Jesus and the uh, Old Testament roots of the priesthood. Yes. Yeah. So uh, th it was it was providential because um, you know uh, we had this shutdown, 
And uh, so suddenly, you know, I do a lot of speaking all around the country and suddenly all of that vanishes. Right. And I, I'm, I'm sitting in Ohio twiddling my thumbs like, OK, you know, what, what, what goes on now? So uh, I, I, wor- I already worked closely with the St. Paul Center. And um, so uh, they said, you know what, we got this office. You know, if you want to get out of your house, I got a whole bunch of kids. You know, it's really hard to work and all. They said, if you want to get out of your house? come down, have an office with us. That'd be great. So I come down, uh, take an office uh, in the uh, in the building with the, the, the St. Paul Center. And we started talking, we're like, what projects can we do together? And, uh, you know, maybe we can write some books. I'm like, you know what, back in the year of the priest, when, when Benedict XVI proclaimed the year of the priest, you know, I, I put together all these talks on the biblical theology of the priesthood, and they're all just sitting there, you know, waiting for something to be done with them. And they said, "Fantastic! We're gonna, we're gonna put the, let's put this together into a book." And I'm, I'm just so uh, pleased with it because it's not just a book for the priesthood. It's not just a book for guys that are in holy orders. This is a book for every Catholic, because one of the most forgotten doctrines of the Catholic Church is that every one of us shares in Christ's priesthood by virtue of our baptism. That does not mean that everybody has the power to confect the Eucharist at the altar, but that does mean all of us have the power to offer the the raw material of our daily lives as a priestly sacrifice to God, and that has great power And that is united to the sacrament of the Eucharist every Lord's Day. And that's how we live out our our, uh, baptismal priesthood, by making a sacrifice of our daily work on a daily basis, by doing it with the right intention, all for the glory of God, all for love of God, by doing our work with excellence, and by by living that, that ongoing conversation of prayer with Jesus Christ, which is part of our priestly heritage pitch by virtue of our baptism. So, I mean, having that priestly notion of being a Catholic layperson, I wish we could recover that because it's actually this idea of priesthood of all believers. This is actually a Catholic teaching that goes to the church fathers and it's in scripture as well. And we need to recover that and, uh, and understand the holiness the holiness of being a lay Catholic and and the opportunity that we have to change the world by accepting the sufferings that we undergo in our daily lives and offering them as a sacrifice to God as a priestly act. You know, John, you mentioned you have eight children. Um, I have four under six in our studios in my house. So if you hear (laughs) footsteps above us, you'll know what's going on because I'm hearing them now. (laughs) It's it's interesting, John, that... um, I'm doing Exodus 90. Actually, it's coming to an end right now. You're familiar with Exodus 90? Yes. Yeah. And, and one of the things is, is the daily readings. You know, we get the daily oh. readings. And it's always the first reading um, is not the daily reading that the church offers for that day, but Exodus, the, Exodus 90, which is a reading from the book of Exodus. And I was fascinated. And this was before we knew we were going to do this interview, how, how God establishes the priesthood on Aaron. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I'm reading it, again, not as a theologian, just as a layman. I'm saying... Wow, that, you know, it just struck me. I said, that sounds awfully Catholic. In other words, the whole construction of the ark and the altar, and then very specific, the vestments that Aaron and his sons have to wear. And we see, as you point out in your book, that this is the these are the roots of what we call the, the Catholic priesthood. How do you respond to Protestants who may say, yeah, but that was the Old Testament. Jesus undid that. Yeah. See, what I would respond to is with Matthew 5.17, which says, I've not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. And for some reason, that never sunk in for me when I was a Protestant. And so my notion was Jesus came to obliterate, you know, the Old Testament priesthood in the Old Testament liturgy. And that's a typically Protestant way of thinking. He came to like scorched earth, just like that's all gone. And now we got, you know, whatever, just me and Jesus, basically. Uh, But in fact, what I've come to believe by coming into the Catholic Church and reading the Church Fathers, et cetera, is that that's not what's going on. Jesus didn't come to obliterate. Again, he came to fulfill. So he didn't come to erase all priesthood and liturgy. He came to give us an effective priesthood and liturgy. Okay, so what was done in the Old Testament was symbolic. Uh, Aaron and the Levites, they offered symbolic sacrifices of animals, animals that symbolized Jesus Christ, who was to come. 
But now the priesthood of the Catholic Church offers the Eucharist, which is truly Jesus Christ. And that sacrifice of Jesus Christ truly atones for sin, unlike the blood of bulls and goats, which can't atone. So things are not abolished. Things become real. So we had symbolic before, and now we have reality. We had symbolic ceremonies. Now we have ceremonies that really wash away sin, really forgive sin, like baptism, reconciliation, the Eucharist. So it's it's that concept, not from, uh, you know, symbolism to nothing, but symbolism to reality. That's the shift that we get when we move into the new covenant. And then, of course, there's going to be other questions and like, well, where do you see, you know, ministerial priesthood in the New Testament and so on? And and I do have responses to all that as well if the conversation goes in that direction. Okay. In terms of like, obviously, um, our Protestant brothers and sisters, we love them. You know what I'm saying? That's I think that's, you know, doesn't even have to be said. But if you have to give one piece of advice to them, uh, you know, you you lived basically, you know, their walk. What would you say uh, to them with regard to uh, the about the Catholic Church and what it's about? Um, maybe that could unlock their heart a little bit. Yeah. What I'd say about that is if you truly love scripture, if you're truly passionate about scripture, then you you will want to become Catholic because the Catholic Church takes scripture more seriously than any other uh, group or branch of Christianity out there. You know, I was shocked when it came down to it. I had my friend, my Catholic friend, Michael, who was really praying for me to come into the Catholic Church. And I was resisting coming into the Catholic Church. And the sticking point became the Eucharist. And suddenly the irony struck me, you know, after reading the Church Fathers on it. But the the irony struck me that my Catholic friend was taking Scripture more literally and more in its plain sense than I was. Because, you know, our Lord says in John 6, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. But he who eats my my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. And I was saying, no, 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 that has to be symbolic. That can't be real. And here my friend, my friend Michael was saying, no, you know, he, he's serious about what he's saying. That's, that's true in the plain sense. He's going to give his flesh to us in the Eucharist to eat. Um, and again, in the, in the passages in Luke 22 and in uh, Mark 14 and the other passages about the Last Supper, Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. That's the plain sense of it. First Corinthians 10 and 11. St. Paul says, uh, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a partaking of the blood of Christ, the bread that we break? Is it not a partaking of the body of Christ? He doesn't say it's a symbol. He doesn't say it represents. No, he says it is a fellowship or a partaking or a participating in. And that, that implies that it really is the flesh and the blood of Jesus. So that's one, just one example. That's just one example. Okay. That's the Eucharist, but that that's where the Catholic church is taking our Lord exactly at his word. And so if you, I know we got, maybe we have some listeners who are, you know, devout Protestants. God bless you. I love people who take the word of God seriously. I love my Jewish brothers who take the word of God seriously. But if you really take it seriously, then you're going to find your home eventually in the Catholic Church, because nobody takes the Word of God more seriously than the Catholic Church. Amen. Amen. I, I would agree with you. And, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Marcus Grodi, and uh, I watch his, his show, The Journey Home. And what I have found, it's a, a common thread across many of those stories, is if people read back to the Church Fathers, they go all the way back, like you said, they ultimately come to the conclusion that the roots of Christianity are Catholic. It's Catholic. And I could just speak to me personally why I am Catholic. One, I'm Italian. I'm born Catholic. That's a given. Um, However- Why did you stay Catholic? That's the question. That's the important question. It's the sacraments. I am Catholic because of the sacraments. Nothing can replace the sacraments. And I think personally- People have to experience that reality. Some of the things that Joe Pessoa and myself talk about, only 30% of Catholics believe in the true presence. We got to change that. We have to, because once you understand that Jesus is in the sacraments, you will never leave the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Ever. 
no matter what happens, because there are always good priests. I know how I feel when I sit before the Blessed Sacrament. I know how I feel after I go to confession. It's tangible and it's real. And that only takes place because of the priesthood. And this is where I wanted to take this question. In your book, basically a major thread holding the biblical story lying together is the priesthood. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, from the very beginning, our first parents had this priestly call, in particular Adam. In Genesis 2.15, it says that Adam was placed in the garden to work and to guard in the garden. And that doesn't seem to mean anything to us modern American readers. But if we actually look at the original language and look for those verbs, work and guard, in the rest of the Bible, we find that they are used together in the book of Numbers and they They describe the priestly duties. The priests and the Levites had to go into the tabernacle and they worked the work and they guarded the guardianship. That's how it's phrased in the original language. Working the work meant celebrating the liturgy and guarding the guardianship meant keeping the sanctuary clean. so, you know, it, it, those are those are like words with a connotation. You know, it has priestly, it has the ring of priesthood. And a lot of Bible scholars recognize this, Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish. In fact, in the Jewish tradition, it's just a given that Adam was a priest. And you find that in ancient Jewish documents, uh, all the way back to the, you know, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. So um, Genesis 2.15, Adam is clearly a priest. He's supposed to celebrate the liturgy in Eden, which is the, the garden. Uh, sanctuary. And that, you know, everything about Adam represents like what God originally intended for humanity. So there was this basic priesthood uh, intended for us. In the book, I say we're not just homo sapiens, which means, you know, thinking man, we're homo liturgicus, we're, we're uh, worshiping man, okay, that's, that's in our, our nature. So that, uh, that call to be one who worships God and offers sacrifice to God and enters into communion with God. That's like deep in our nature. Adam, you know, Adam uh, messes that up by his sin, but nonetheless, he, you know, even in his sinful state, he retains this priesthood. It's passed down uh, in the Jewish tradition. They understand that it's passed down by from father to firstborn son to Noah. You know, Noah uh, acts like a priest after the flood. His oldest son, Shem, was a priest. Uh, the Jews believe that Shem is Melchizedek, who shows up in Genesis 14 as the king of Salem and blesses Abraham. And then later, when David becomes king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, it's believed that he inherited that priesthood that went along with the kingship of that city. And that's why in Psalm 110, it says of the son of David that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then, of course, our Lord is the son of David, as we see in Matthew chapter 1. And so he inherits this priesthood of Melchizedek that really goes back to Adam. So uh, there's this priesthood theme that runs all the way through, you know, and, and St. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 9, that we as the church, we are a royal priesthood. And what he means there is, you know, royal priesthood was offered to the people of Israel back at Sinai before uh, the covenant was given. Moses says to them, if you keep this covenant, you're going to be to me a royal priesthood. And then, of course, they had the golden calf in and they broke that covenant to smithereens and it didn't work out. But now that's been restored in Christ. And so Peter says to us, you are a royal priesthood now. And that's our call as uh, as lay Catholics. We're baptized in Christ's priesthood. But that doesn't mean there aren't those who are set aside for what we call that ministerial priesthood to do the, the sacraments themselves and, and, sac- and celebrate those for us. And those men come, come out of the apostles. Jesus gives the priestly duties of the Levitical priesthood one by one. As we read the Gospels, he hands them over to the apostles, and the apostles share them with their successors when we read the book of Acts. And that's the origin of those in holy orders who have that what we call ministerial priesthoods. But the two priesthoods work together in the church. For those of you who are just joining us, you're with The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Facillo and Joe Resinello, and we're having a great conversation with Dr. John Bergsma about his new book, Jesus and the Old Testament Roots of the Priesthood. John, there was so much there to touch upon. Um, I, I want to just uh, basically expand on one thought. You said we were meant we were created to worship. That's one of the uh, one of two essential points that this book brings out. It basically you also state that we as disciples have a mission. 
Talk a little bit about, because I, I think it gets into like almost like the natural law. We're meant to worship. Human beings were made for God. Talk about that. I think a lot of people can relate to it. And John, just so you know, we have about five minutes till the break just to give you a heads up. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's deep in our that, that's deep in our nature. Uh, you know, modern, you know, secular science, whether it's social science or natural science, wants to deny that, wants to say that we're nothing but material beings that evolve from lower life forms, etc. But that's not true to our being. And and what you see is we're going to worship something, okay? And everybody worships something. They either worship their pleasures, you know, they worship their music, they worship uh, sexuality, they worship uh, drugs or, uh, you know, uh, or gaining prestige in their job or uh, their pride or money. Okay. And, and the ancient peoples worshiped those things too, but they actually made idols, you know, that were personifications, you know, so the God Mars was the personification of power and the goddess Venus was the personification of sexual pleasure and so on. And so they, they worship these things in a overt way, but it hasn't changed. We still do that. We just don't make the gold idols anymore. Okay. But it's still a fundamentally idolatry. So we're going to worship something and we best worship God because when we worship God, he elevates our nature and he draws us up to himself and he makes us noble and he makes us virtuous. And if we don't worship God, we're going to end up worshiping something else and anything else other than God ends up essentially worshiping Satan. It ends up worshiping essentially demons and that degrades us and it leads us into cruelty, it leads us into selfishness, it leads us into self-seeking, etc. So if we don't want to be degraded as human beings, we need to answer that fundamental created call in us to worship God who elevates it elevates us and ennobles us rather than all this other crap around us that just drags us down to an animal level. One thing that's funny is that I said earlier in the conversation, I said you're you you got you're not confrontational. However, John, I am, okay? And, and I've had this conversation with people. I've learned to be a little bit better, uh, but I've had this conversation. And, I, and and the subject of worship or serving God has come up with people who I know who are either agnostic or just outright atheist in a very dismissive way too. Like, I'm an atheist, I'm smarter than you. But having said that, and they say, well, you, you just worry about worshiping God. In other words, like, that's all you want to do for eternity. I said, but every time you go out and you, you're together with your friends, that's all you do is worship yourselves. And I made the point that you just made, maybe, like I said, in a little bit more of a confrontational way. So do you think you're not worshiping something when you sit around? In other words, and you, that's all you do is talk about yourself and the things that you create. In other words, whether you're an actor, whether you're a musician, whether you're a dancer, that you do the same thing. I said, I just, I just believe that, and Catholics believe that, at, you know, when we reach heaven, you know, we are going to sit around and talk about the infinite, which is the mind of God itself. And God Himself, okay, where you know you're you're you, and and we worship that because all everything that I am comes from God. And right. I said so that that's why God is due the worship, and that's why I'll be very pleased to worship God for all eternity. Because why wouldn't you? Because you have no being if it's not for God, and right. that doesn't quite seem to penetrate. Yeah. And I had an atheist tell me one time, why does God need worship if he's so great? You know, why does he need worship for creatures? I said, look, it's not God that needs worship. It's us that need worship. Because what worship is, it's, it's communion. You know, it's, it's like this embrace of another person. And so worship is how we embrace God, how we enter into communion, that, that relationship with him. And, and that's ecstatic, you know, that, that that's like leads to ecstasy because he is so perfect, so beautiful, so extraordinary. And, and that's why good worship, you know, when, when, when we, we do it right, when there's honor and there's reverence and, and there's beauty in worship, it actually, you know, elevates us, you know, and, and leads to an ecstasy and people, you know, have experiences, but he, but even if we don't have some kind of like supernatural experience in the worship center, it's still we're entering into communion with God. It's that relationship, and that's what it's all about. Yeah, um, we're we're gonna go to a break. I would say this though. I have said to people that when 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 I guess in a very kind of almost critical or dismissive way, where I've heard people say, "Well, what what is the purpose of life?" And I said, "Well, to to know, love, and serve God." And they said, "Well, why is that?" I said, "Because because I can never know God." the way he knows me, I can never serve God the way he serves me, and I can never love God the way he loves me. So it's like you said, John, I do these things be because, not because God needs it, because we do. Yeah. 
So let me leave it there for a second, um, and we'll take a break, and we'll come right back. You're at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello. We are way in the breach with Dr. John Bergsma, and we're talking about his new book, Jesus and the Old Testament Roots of the Priesthood. Uh, please remember you're listening to the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area, and make sure you download the app. Veritas Catholic Network app so that you can have access to all of our content. We'll talk to you in a couple of minutes. Hi, this is Dr. David Anders from EWTN's Call to Communion. Every day, we ask the question, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? People call in from all over the world to share with us their thoughts, their concerns, their questions about the Catholic faith, and we try to answer those questions remove objections and misunderstanding. And the fruit is obvious in the lives of the callers. We get testimonies on a daily, weekly basis of those whose lives have been transformed by first encountering the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Catholic Church on Catholic Radio. Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 AM, is bringing the truth to Connecticut and New York serving the larger New York City metro area. You can support their ministry by calling 833 888-7884. That's 833-88-TRUTH or VeritasCatholic.com. Remember, Veritas Catholic Network, on the air since August the 21st, 2019. Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello, way, way, way in the breach with Dr. John Bergsma, and we are talking about his new book, Jesus and the Old Testament Roots of the Priesthood. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to my brother, Joe Resinello. John, um, your book has like a four-part study series. Tell us a little bit about that, because I'm sure a lot of people would like to utilize that, um, say, in parishes, in men's groups. Um, What kind of feedback have you got, you know, back from that? And also, uh, what advice would you give folks that are utilizing it to utilize it effectively? Sure. Yeah, this is a this is a short book, uh, you know, something like 150 pages. It's not a difficult read. Uh, came out of, you know, oral lectures that we basically transcribed. So uh, p- folks should not be uh, intimidated. This makes a great parish study. You know, we, we put in those uh, parish study questions at the end of the chapters uh, from feedback that I've got on earlier books, like my Bible Basics series uh, and, and some other stuff that I published. You know, people love the books, but then they would, they would call in, they would email and say, hey, do you have some study questions so we can work through this book as a group? So we thought we'd you know beat it to the punch this time and just put the questions in there with the first edition. And so this makes a great like four week uh, Bible study that you can do with a men's group that you can do in in, uh, in a parish. What I would recommend about it is people just kind of read the book with their Bible open to you know to the right, you know, and, and periodically just check those scriptures that we're talking about because. This, this is not like my Catholic doctrine that I came up with, you know, or or something I dug out of, uh, you know, an author from the Middle Ages or something like this. This is just explaining the scriptures and 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 showing how, you know, the system that we have of, you know, a priestly people, which is the Catholic people, and then also a ministerial priesthood that that gives us these sacraments. That, that this is based in scripture. It's in continuity with the Old Testament and, and really in continuity since the beginning of creation. And, um, and, and you know this this can really revitalizes revitalize people's uh, spiritual lives as they realize their own priestly call by virtue of their baptism, as well as understand you know what the role of you know the the ministerial priest is you know the the your your pastor you know the priest that you go to for confession and so on. We need to stop looking at him as the guy that does all the religious work while while we sit back. Okay, that's not that's not his role. He's a father in the family. The father puts the the bread and butter on the table, right? So his job is to feed us, and then we're supposed to go out there and we're supposed to spread the gospel, okay? We've got a responsibility for the gospel. We've got a responsibility for the mission of the church. And our local pastor is just giving us the sacraments that we got the power from God to go out there and convert people on the workplace or draw people to Christ, whether we're on the uh, the construction site or whether we're into plumbing or whether we're an educator or whether we're 
in finance or whatever, or we're driving a taxi, uh, we're, we're sanctifying that, we're doing that for the sake of Christ, and then we're spreading the word about Jesus with the people that we encounter there so that they can come to know this love that fills our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and that's our role. It's not, it's not Father's role to do all of that while we kind of sit back and watch the show. <laughs> I would agree with you 100%. John. Absolutely. Um, while we're on the subject, all right, I didn't know if we were going to get into it, but you mentioned earlier about some of the ministerial duties of, of a priest. This is a big stumbling block for a lot of people, so I'll, we're, we, we kind of alluded to it, so I'm going to ask it. When when uh, you hear many times, well, you know, why do I have to go to a priest? Or, or they talk about the functions of a priest, but let's talk specifically. Why do we go to priest for his confession? Well, in other words, it's a whole idea, as you alluded to, that, well, you know, it seems to be the attitude, well, I could just go straight to Jesus. Why do we go to priests for confession? You Give an example to our audience uh, about one of the things that a priest does and the importance of us acknowledging what that priest does. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, confession is rooted in the Old Testament. It, uh, you know, under the, the Mosaic Covenant, if you committed a sin, you had to go and confess your sin. Uh, now, it doesn't. it's not explicit who you confess the sin to in Leviticus 5, but if you read the context, it's obvious you got to confess that sin to the priest because you got to bring an animal. And the priest had to make sure that the animal that you brought corresponded to the gravity of the sin that you had committed. So that meant you had to confess what you had done. Like if you come, if you do like grand larceny auto and you come with a couple of pigeons, forget it. Okay. You got to bring a bull, you know, nothing but a bull is going to do for, for grand larceny auto. Whatever, you know, obviously, but, um, but, you know, so there was a gradation. So if you actually read Leviticus five and then through the rest of Leviticus, I mean, I was shocked actually. I can't believe that I read this for my whole life and I never saw this, but those Israelites, they had to go, they had to confess their sin. And then the priest offered this sacrifice on their behalf and only after the priest offered that sacrifice were they forgiven. So that administration of the forgiveness of sins that was in the hands of the priesthood in the Old Testament, if you want to be forgiven, you didn't go to the king, you didn't go to the prophet, you had to go to the priest. But then when we turn to the to the New Testament, we look in John 20, and Jesus, after he's risen, he breathes on them and he says to the apostles, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, whose sins you retain are retained. And it never dawned on me, but what he's doing is he's giving this role, this responsibility that belonged to the Levitical priests in the Old Testament, he's giving it now to the apostles. So this is based on scripture. This is based on our Lord's words himself. He gave to the apostles the authority to forgive or retain sin. And then when we read the book of Acts carefully, we see that the apostles shared their authority with other men who could reach places that they could not get geographically and, and for a longer time beyond the life beyond their own lifetime so that this ministry would continue. And then in James 5, it says, if anyone is sick, he should call the presbyters, which is literally the priests. That's where we get the word priest from. If anyone is sick, he should call the presbyters, and they will come, and they will anoint the sick man with oil. Uh, and, and it says, if he has if he has committed any sins, that they that, uh, his sins will be forgiven. And we see there, you know, that's really that's really last rites. That's really uh, you know anointing of the sick. That's that, that that sacrament is present there in James five. And also, you know, you know how the the ritual of anointing the sick involves confession within it. It involves reconciliation within it. You usually make confession of your sins before you're anointed, and that's all present there. And um, James also tells us in James 5 that we should uh, confess our sins to one another. And this actually frustrated me, uh, guys, because when I was a Protestant pastor, I was preaching a sermon series on James. I got to James 5, and I'm like, confess your sins to one another. Like, we Protestants, we don't have any way to do that. I'm like, what am I going to tell my people? Like, we're going to have small groups and break up into small groups and confess their sins. That's never going to work. You know, I was in a downtown urban area where everybody was in everybody else's business, you know. <laughs> and and it, people started telling what they had done on a weekend. That's going to scandalize everybody, lead to all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, craziness. So, like, I, I don't know what to do. And then it occurred to me, you know what, Catholics have a way of obeying the scripture they go to their pastor 
in, in, in confidentiality. And the pastor represents the, the, the rest of the church because he's the head of the local congregation. And then in confidentiality, they can confess their sins and they can obey this scripture. And I was really struck by the fact that Catholics have a way of obeying scripture that I did it. Now, I, I didn't put two and two together and want to become Catholic at that point. This is about five years before I converted, but I was just like, wow, I never saw it that way, that it actually commands us to confess our sins. And, and Catholics have a system of doing it that is humane and and, and reasonable and, and um, you know, doesn't, you know, allow you to be embarrassed in front of the entire community, but still enables you to confess your sins and get that off. And there's more to it there because there's also spiritual warfare component in, in, in reconciliation. But, uh, but I'll, I'll break at that point because I've been talking too long. <laughs> I, 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 I want to follow up on two things, which you said. First of all, I want to basically uh, compliment your humility because I'll be honest with you like Dr. Hahn, who you work with, who was also in, you know, in the Protestant world, it takes a humble man to do what you did. I, it's important to say, because a lot of people won't do that. They recognize something to be true. People have to realize when you're in the Protestant world, your whole world gets turned up, upside down. That was your livelihood yeah. and you walked away from it. So did Dr. Hahn. Right. That is, so did Marcus Grodi. Yeah. This is something that I can't, like emphasize enough it takes a lot of courage as well as humility. And this is something I think that prevents people sometimes from going to confession. And secondly, I'll just relate it on, you know, just to piggyback on what you said, Joe is my brother-in-law. If I do something wrong and he's my friend. And if I said, Joe, I did this wrong and we talked about it, that's one thing, but it's another thing. If I go to a priest, it's how I feel a burden. Like no one can tell me, like if I eat a meal, I'm not full. I'm full. I ate. You can't say, well, that's just psychological. No, it's not. I'm full. Well, if I do something wrong and I tell Joe, I feel one way. I feel a completely different way if I go to a priest because he has the ability to take away the sin. He's persona Christi. I encourage people to go to confession. It's cathartic. It's yeah. healthy. Yeah. It's a way to change your life. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I not, want to talk. Okay, please. It, it's all of those things. It's so good psychologically. You know, I had pastoral care classes when I was a Protestant minister. And, um, and you know, we, we talked about this, that if you could get to the point with your parishioner that they could open up to you and admit what they've done, like there's a lot of healing, you know. But for us as Protestants, it was rare that we ever got that close to our parishioners that, that they would feel free to open up. And, you, you know, uh, uh, the sacrament of reconciliation is the best psychotherapy in the whole confounded world. And you don't, it doesn't cost anything. You don't have to pay a shrink. Uh, you can go to any confessional, you know, anywhere in the world. I've gone in Rome to, you know, somebody that could barely speak English, et cetera. It, it doesn't matter. And, and then with, with no preliminaries, you can get right to the issue with your psychological problems. And, you know, the, the, the issue with a lot of our psychological problems is, is, is our sin, you know, and if we, we get rid of that sin, that goes 90% of the way to just kind of natural psychological healing and getting that out and getting that a present before God. But it's not just also, it's not just a, you know, a, a natural form. This is a supernatural phenomenon because when we sin, we give consent to the evil one to work in our lives and he gets control. And I have a, I have a whole talk that I give at parishes called the uh, confession as spiritual warfare. Because when I was real quick, when I was a prostitute. Go ahead, go ahead, please. Yeah, when we were in deliverance ministry, you know, as a Protestant, we would, you know, pray when people had manifestations or some kind of evil presence in their homes or in their lives, we would go and we would pray with them and, and, and try to free them of that in accordance with the scripture. What we, what we found as Protestants worked the best was for people to systematically confess all their sins in the presence of other believers. And that worked much better than trying to call up a demon and, and force them out by, by the name of Jesus. That, that, kind of like formal exorcism that has its place in, in some cases, but usually the most effective thing we found was for people to confess all the sins that they could think of in the presence of other believers and ask the Lord for, for forgiveness in the presence of other believers. And, and people would be freed from crazy stuff going on in their house. I mean, I live where it was raw, you know, where it was like prostitution, uh, drug use, every kind of, you know, you know, evil that you can imagine in, in downtown uh, Grand Rapids where, where I used to serve. 
So there was a lot of demonic activity. And, and we, we saw the freeing power that people getting liberated by confessing their sins in the presence of other Christians. And, and, and that was planting a seed in my mind because a couple of years later, when I was pondering coming into the Catholic Church, I realized, oh my gosh, the sacrament of confession, that is liberation. That is spiritual liberation. That is that is a deliverance ministry is what that is. It's a kind of exorcism right there that if you go and you 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 for you confess your sins, what you're doing is you're denying the consent that you gave to the evil one to work in your life. And when you deny consent, he he has to leave. He's got no hand grips on you. I like to use the image of a greased pig. You know, when you come out of confession, you're like a greased pig. You can't, the devil can't grab onto you. You keep, you keep slipping out of his hands because he's got nothing to hold onto you because you haven't given him consent to work in his in your life. And he can't work in your life unless you give him consent. And you give him consent when you sin. And so confession frees you from all that. It's really deliverance ministry. And people need to take that perspective on it, that I'm going to be freed. I'm not just going to be judged or, or something like that. No, I'm going to be liberated. And that, I, I always love this, this sacrament. And I, I go frequently because I love to be liberated. Amen. I, 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 two, two points I want to make. One is to emphasize to the audience out there, you're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello, great and important conversation with Dr. John Bergsman. We're talking about his book, Jesus and the Jewish roots of the, or the Old Testament roots of the priesthood. Two points. One is, and I've heard this, and it's something I want to impart to the audience. Remembering along the lines of what you said, John, the the, the, the devil is a, is a mangy dog, okay? But he's on a leash. Mm-hmm. And the only way he can get you is if you enter his circle, okay? Because mm-hmm. he is on a leash. And that's what we do. Um, that's what we do when we sin. The other one is, I hope I'm not misattributing this. I think it was Carl Jung. Um, I could be wrong, but I think it was Carl Jung who said, if my patients availed themselves of Catholic confession, I'd lose 99% of my patients. I <laughs> believe it was him that said that. I think it was, that. actually. All right? and it was Jung that said that. That's There's tough. an acknowledgement there that a lot of people don't want don't, don't to hear on the part of Carl Jung to say, you know, a lot of the issues these people are dealing with are guilt issues guilt yeah. due to sin and every, the greatest psychiatrist in the world can't truly take that away. Only Christ can. Yeah. John, you talked about the right of our baptism and you, you basically talked a little bit about the role of priest. I want to expand on that a little bit. We are by the right of our baptism, all Catholics, we are priests, prophets, and kings. Let's talk a little bit about prophets. What is a prophet? A prophet is someone who speaks the truth. We're in the Easter season. Yesterday, I went to the, uh, what's it called, the Good Friday service. Basically, the priest read, he said, those who hear the truth, hear my voice. I, I think that is very accurate. Teresa of Avila, she was an atheist. She was of Jewish, you know, had a Jewish background. She heard something. Well, and then she read something. She, uh, not, no, Edith Stein, she read a book on Teresa of Avila, I correct myself. And she then said, this is the truth. Mm-hmm. People whose hearts are, are basically open to the truth and we're called to speak the truth. So basically Catholics in, the, in this culture basically have to witness their faith by their lives. I always say this on the show, John, people believe what they see, not necessarily what they hear. How best can Catholics strengthen themselves spiritually for this battle in the public square? Because we are in a war in the public square. Yeah, absolutely. Well, priesthood and prophethood go together because uh, when you speak the truth, you got to be ready basically to be killed. And um, that's that's the priestly aspect is uh, as, as baptized believers, what we offer to God is essentially our lives. And that that may take the form of our daily work, but it might actually literally take the form of our lives. And so you you don't have the courage to speak the truth and until you've been reconciled to this priestly call by our baptism that I've got to be ready to lay down my life like Jesus did. Jesus's sacrifice was not an animal. It was actually his own body. And, uh, and he backed up the truth of his words by sacrificing his own body. So we have to mentally, uh, you know, mentally be prepared for that. And one of the things that is helpful in, in that endeavor is every morning when we get up and we have that prayer time with God, we have to like renew that commitment that Lord, I am yours. Whatever you call me to do, I am willing to do today. 
I don't have any other goal than than your love, than your glory. You know, and if it if it costs me my house, if it costs me my finances, if it costs me my car, whatever, I'm willing to lay it down on the line because that's the point we're getting at this country where if you if you stand up and you speak the truth, you might lose your job, you might lose your position, you might be lynched on social media, uh, you, you know, somebody might slash your tires, etc. And so, hey, that that is that is how it's been for Catholics for centuries. When you go back through church history, you know it has mostly been persecution, and so uh, you know we haven't had it for uh, you know maybe 150 years or so in this country, and uh, we've got kind of cushy, but we have to be willing to lay down that lay down our lives in that priestly act in order to have that prophetic courage to actually say what's true and and, and say to all this nonsense, all this kind of like. Uh, like modern superstition that's going around in our culture uh, with people like outright denying, you know, what's, what's obvious, you know, maleness and femaleness, for example, you know, the life of the child in the womb. And it's like, you know, it is like, uh, let's wake up people here. But, uh, but to have the courage to speak that truth, we have to be willing to make that sacrifice. John, I, I just want to say ahead, this. What you just described is a dangerous man. <laughs> when you're willing to do what you just did, that is a dangerous person. Now, what that is also, that's a free person. Mm -hmm. Everyone talks about freedom. You see, when you have that mentality, you are free. You're radically free. And it's radical that. Catholicism that changes the world. All the saints did that. I say this all the time. Benedict XVI said, only saints change the world. We must embrace the truth. You mentioned in the other segment, you said, we took Christ at his word. Well, if we take Christ at his word, we're going to live a radical life. And if we live that radical life, which is fueled by the sacraments, we truly will be prophets in this world. And we will, I'll be honest with you, we will make a deep, deep impact in this culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at even like in the American Catholic Church, people like Dorothy Day, people like Fulton Sheen, these guys didn't and women didn't walk like everybody else. They were serious. They took Christ at his word. And you know something? It turned heads. We have to get back to that, John. I think just one comment, John, on what you were talking about, uh, we talk about, especially like in America. I think the Marxist has actually learned the lesson from history. In other words, rather than like Stalin or Mao just outright killing everybody in their own societies or millions of people in their own societies, now they're much more subtle. They realize that's not going to get them too far probably create too many martyrs for them to have to deal with. So now it's like you said, and people should be aware of this. You know, what's worse, losing your life or having four kids that you can't feed? You know what I mean? Because you've had your job taken away or four kids that you don't you, you don't have a house for because you've had your home taken away and all these different things that are going on. People need to realize it doesn't have to be outright, you know, of, you know, like I said, Stalin or Mao. It could just be what they're trying to do now, which is cancel you take away your ability to put food on the table. Chris, all Christians, but Catholics and Catholic men in particular need to step, step up and fight this evil. And if we understood our role as priests, perhaps we would do that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we got to be ready to do whatever, you know, <laughs> my, my backup plan is truck driving. <laughs> <laughs> That's, it'll be harder for them to cancel me as a truck driver. <laughs> Amen. I love it. John, we love you. <laughs> I like the way you think. That is great. The ladies' kingly office is exercised. It's just to basically expand on this uh, by their leadership in the temporal affairs. I mean, we're all in the world. You know, I work at a bank. Joe works at a restaurant. Um, the catechism is very clear on this. I just want to read you this quote. This is what it says. It says, moreover, by uniting their forces, let the laity so remedy the institutions and conditions of the world when the latter are an inducement to sin, that these may be conform to the norms of justice, favoring rather than hindering the practice of virtue. And this is the important part. By so doing, they will impregnate the culture and human works with moral value. This goes to what you're saying, John. Priests have their role. We have ours. We yeah. got to get out there and yeah. we have to show people. That's what Catholics are supposed to do. Please comment on it. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, you know, sometimes when, first of all, most Catholics don't under, uh, never heard this idea that we're priests by our baptism. Secondly, when, when folks do hear that, they think, oh, that means I need to lecture at mass, you know, or I need to be an usher or something. In other words, I've got to take some kind of liturgical role. It's like, no, 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 you, you don't get it. Your priesthood is to go out and sanctify, to make holy, okay, the, uh, the what's called the temporal order. That means like the stuff that goes on outside the church, right? So, you know, who's going to sanctify banking? Who's going to sanctify um, the education system? Who, who's going to make these things holy? Who's going to really, you know, bring the light of Christ to all these different uh, areas, to, to transfer transportation, to engineering, to infrastructure, to, you know, construction, you know, you name it, every branch of human endeavor, to the arts, you know, uh, who's going to who's going to bring the light of Christ to that that's our priestly role, you know, and our kingly role as well, as you so well put it, you know, and, and you're absolutely right, Joe, I, I was shocked. I, I read that same passage a, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I'm like, you know what, this idea that, oh, you know, um, I, I'm just a Catholic here and, and the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And so I'm going to shrink back and I'm just going to like, you know, go to my parish and pray and go to adoration. I'm just not going to get involved. And I'm just not going to try to do anything about it. You know, that's not what the church calls us to do. The church actually calls us to try to to do whatever we can to implement righteous laws, you know, so that so that the natural law is upheld by the government. And that's part of our role as a lady. That's not the role of the bishops to do that. You know, we always want, oh, the bishops should make this statement or that statement. And sometimes they should. But uh, it's really not the bishops to change the role to change the government. We're the voters. We're the, we're the people that can take place to take part in the political process as lay Catholics. That's our role to speak up uh, for, for what is true in the in the uh, political realm and and uh, have laws that uh, that encourage virtue and discourage vice so that so that it is easier for people to come to know god and and when when what we currently have is a culture that punishes virtue and rewards vice and it messes with the minds of the young such that it, it is it's it's quite literally hellacious you know they're growing up in an upside down world where when they do what's right they're punished and when they do what's wrong they get rewarded and, and that's a system that we're living in. And, and you're absolutely right. We can't we can't sit back. We may not be successful in the short term, but as Catholics, we're called to be involved and to uh, to sanctify, to make holy. Yes, even the realm of politics, so that our laws encourage what is right and discourage what is evil. One thing that I just want to follow up with. That's one of the things. I'm glad you said it. That Joe and I say on the show all the time. The greatest counter revolutionary act you could commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. So John, we have about, I'm guessing about three minutes or so. Joe, how about one final question for John? And John, at the end of the question, please tell our audience where uh, where they can learn more about you, what you're doing, and most importantly, where they could buy your books, please. Um, basically, we talked yeah, to Bill cool. Donahue. <clears throat> our show just kicked off on Veritas. He was our first guest and he talked about a practical way to, to basically talk, speak to what you just said. Uh, basically run for school board. You know, we see a lot of things going on in public schools, even in, you know, affluent neighborhoods. You know, uh, adults are pushing transgenderism on children. I mean, gosh, yeah. I can't even believe this. Kids don't need that. I mean, people have to stand up. It's not like, they, and, and, and you know, even if, like you said, even if you're going to lose, like you have to stand up to this, not hurt people, not burn things down, but speak the truth. This is what John Paul II had to say. And I love what he said, because I love what he did. He was one of the best, to be honest with you. I think he was the most significant person of the 20th century. That's my opinion. But he said, lay believers are in the front line of the church. For them, the church is the animating principle of human society. Therefore, they in particular ought to have an ever clearer conscience, not only of belonging to the church, but of being the church. We're that extension. We have to be those people. It's so important, John. I, I, I mean, I get crazy. I mean, about it, but it's just so important. Yeah. Uh, can you comment on that? Yeah. You know, John Paul II was just, you know, calling us out to to, uh, to 
our vocation, you know, what we've been talking about this whole time. Our vocation, you know, and, and we talked about prophethood and we talked about priesthood, but, you know, maybe this relies more on kingship. And and that is, you know, uh, you know, from the beginning, for, you know, Adam was called to be king over all creation. He was over the fish, over the birds, over uh, every living creature. He had this natural kingship. And that's really the calling of every human being to exercise lordship over uh, that realm that we are given. And of course, we can't do that until we first become king over ourselves. And that's made possible by the sacraments and by the Holy Spirit and by repentance. We get the Holy Spirit that enables us to control our own passions, control our own sinful nature. So we're at peace with ourselves. We're under under control. and We're living lives of virtue through the power of the Holy Spirit. Then we, we become kings over our own selves. And then we can start to exercise that kingship over our household and then in our communities you know and you're absolutely right it's it's grassroots it's like getting involved at the local level things bubble up from below and i think that for too many of us we want to like well i just want to you know i just want to go to mass and, and do my work and you know leave the rest of it into somebody else's hands and mm. that capitulation just leaves it well, well whose hands are you leaving it in then you know right. and don't complain when you get kind of craziness and your kid comes home and he's a boy and he thinks he's a girl because that's what his teacher told him. Like I, you know, this being young is, is so difficult. I don't know why we're putting this, this additional burden on them of, of, of telling kids that they have to figure out what their gender is when it's obvious, when that's a, that's a physical, you know, it's a physical, uh, uh, characteristic, but anyway, well, that, that's, that's something that we obviously have to fight against. John, we're out of time. So, uh, real quick, where can people buy your book? Sure. CatholicBibleTeacher.com will get them to my website. That's the easiest to remember. Absolutely. John Bergsman, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. We hope to have you back in the future. And thank you, dear brothers and sisters, for joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Network, bringing the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York metropolitan area at 1350 on your AM dial. For all Veritas content, please be sure to download our Veritas Catholic Network mobile app and also be sure to follow Joe and I on Facebook and YouTube until they shut us down, of course. Like, subscribe, share, hit the little bell, all that fun stuff. And remember until the next time that our conversation is your conversation and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.